you have your Bible today, I hope you'll take it and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is where we're continuing in this series we've called The Forerunner. As you're turning there, let me ask you a question. And I I would invite your feedback, just shout it out. When you think of Christmas, what are some of the first things that come to your mind? There's no wrong answers. When you think of Christmas, what are some of the first things that come to your mind? Let me hear your answers. Jesus, the nativity. Christmas cookies. I know that voice. He's like his father. Gifts. What else? Mistletoe. (laughs) Hey, if you're sitting around, whoever shouted that out, make sure that they don't have some in their pocket that they're just waiting. Mistletoe. What else? Pretty lights. Christmas tree. Family. Christmas carols. Tree toppers. Is that what I heard? Fantastic. Anything else before we move on? Peace, the cross, angels. All right, we could, we could go on and on, couldn't we? I mean, there's a lot of symbols, a lot of things that are part of how we celebrate Christmas. Most of them, you know, it's not an issue of right or wrong. It's, it's how, we, we, how we celebrate and how we remember what this holiday stands for. Let me, let me zone in a little bit. Um, when you think of the birth of Jesus Christ, what are some things that come to mind? Go ahead. I'd like to hear your answers again. I'm sorry? Mary. Mary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess she was part of it. <laughs> I don't know where my ears are today, Gertrude. Thank you. Mary. What else do you think of when you think of the birth of Christ? Love. Manger. Shepherds. Gabriel. Of course, he announced that, he, that Jesus was coming. Joseph, no room. Angels again, fantastic, fantastic. Good, good, good. So, so these things that we think about when we think of the birth of Jesus, we think of them because they're part of the story, right? They're, they're things in the story that pertain to the birth of Jesus. Uh, um, but I think we all have an understanding, I hope we do, that those things aren't the point, right? The angels aren't the point. The manger isn't the point. Mary isn't the point. They all point to the point, but they're not the point. Let's say it like this. Have you ever, um, have you ever played fetch with a dog who just didn't get it? It might. Thank you. I assume that was Naomi. Thank you for agreeing with me. Have you ever played fetch with, we had a dog for a while that just couldn't catch anything, um, didn't, didn't understand anything. That's why we no longer have a dog. Um, but if you ever played fetch with a dog and you throw the ball and then you say, the, the dog just sits there and looks at you like, now why'd you go and do that? And so what do you do? You say, fetch, go get the ball, go get the ball. And what does the dog do? They, they move from looking at you with like, why did you do that? And they, they look at your finger. Like, the finger, what am I the thing you're pointing with, and they don't get it. You want them to go get the ball, but all they see is the pointer. I'm afraid that too many times at Christmas, we spend all of our time looking at the pointer, and we miss the point. And I have a sense from today's passage that, uh, that Luke is concerned about the same thing. Up to this point in Luke's gospel, 
He's pretty much, uh, the majority of what he's talked about in chapter 1 was all about the forerunner, John the Baptist, this person who would come before Jesus and point the way to Jesus. Luke spent the most of his time there because that was important. It was part of fulfilled prophecy. But as we turn into Luke chapter 2, we get this sense that, that Luke is saying the forerunner is important. John the Baptist is important, but he's only a pointer. He's only pointing us in the direction we should look. He's not the point, but he's pointing to the point. He's pointing to where this is all going and why this is all happening. In the verses that we read today, Luke is comparing the greatest man who ever lived, because by the way, in the story a little further, that's what Jesus calls John the Baptist. Luke is comparing the greatest man who ever lived to the only God who ever lived. And we're going to see that that Luke is also comparing the actual Son of God with a different man who claimed to be the son of a God. He's not not talking about John the Baptist at that point. Luke introduces us at the outset of chapter 2 to another man. I'd like to introduce you to him. His name is Caesar Augustus. You've heard of him, surely, in the Christmas story, uh, and perhaps from history if you you remember bits of history. Um, We've learned a lot about John the Baptist, but let me give you a real quick introduction to Caesar Augustus because he appears in the first verse of what we're going to read today. Um, Caesar Augustus. So uh, understand that that's a title. Caesar Augustus is not his name. It's his title. His actual name was Octavian or Octavius. This is a Roman ruler, the, the, the supreme ruler over all of Rome. Caesar Augustus was his title. His real name was Octavian or Octavius. And he was the nephew of Julius Caesar. Now you recognize that name for sure, right? The Shakespeare play, Julius Caesar, friends, Roman countrymen, lend me your ears. I have come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. That's that's Julius Caesar that he's talking about. So Octavian was the nephew of Julius Caesar. Now, Julius Caesar adopted Octavian and made him an heir in, in Julius's will. So he was set to become the next emperor of Rome, which indeed he did. And so because he was, because Octavian was Julius's nephew, when Julius Caesar was killed, Octavian made some bold and strategic moves that helped him to cash in on Uncle Julius's popularity with the people and their sympathy at his assassination, if you will. First of all, he adopted his own father's name. And then he also declared Julius Caesar a god of the Roman state. So Octavius, Octavian, said Julius Caesar was actually a god in human form. Now, if your adopted father, if your father was a god, what does that make you? The son of a god, right? (laughs) This guy was cunning. He was crafty. And he capitalized on this. As a matter of fact, Octavian had coins minted that on one side had a depiction of Julius Caesar, and they said... 
Uh, what did they say? They said the god Julius. And on the other side was Octavius's picture. And they said Caesar, son of a god. Octavian took the name Augustus in 27 BC to inspire reverence and awe. Uh, perhaps you're aware of this, the, uh, the word August, or we would say it August, actually means respected and impressive. Of course, those of us who were born in the month of August, we naturally understand that. Why are we the only two laughing? We're surely not the only August birthdays. And then finally, by eliminating his enemies through war, Octavian initiated what has been called through history Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Of course, I think you need to be suspicious, rightfully so, of any peace that's initiated and maintained through war and intimidation and absolute cruelty. Nonetheless, this is the Caesar Augustus about whom we read as we start the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to ask you to follow along as I read from Luke chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to comment as I go. Um, You may want to make some notes. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, historically speaking, why do governments take censuses? Yeah, historically speaking, there's two main reasons. Taxes is one, that's correct. And the other one is to count the military force. How many men can I count on when I go to war? That was especially the case with Rome who ruled through war. Now, what's interesting is that in, in the part of the world where, uh, where this account takes place, there, there wasn't a concern about men being conscripted, conscripted to military service. The Jews were exempt from that. So as we read about the census being taken in, in what we now call the Holy Land or in, in the Middle East, the, the, the land of the Jews, it's strictly about taxes and historians say pride. We'll get back to that. Verse 2, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Now, what's curious is that Roman censuses took place in the town where you lived. That kind of makes sense. We can resonate with that. However, there was a Roman law that said if you owned land in a, in a place other than where you lived, you went to where you owned land to pay taxes. Why? because there's more coin in, in that tax, right? You can be taxed on what you own, not just on, you know, on, the, on the land that you own, not just on where you live. Now, Jewish law, curiously, required that when censuses were to take place, the people would go back to the land of their ancestors. And so if you were a Benjamite, Benjamite you'd go back to the land of Benjamin, and you would be counted there. So both Roman law and Jewish law, as it turns out, is what led to verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Why didn't Luke say that Joseph and Mary were married 
I mean, technically they were, but they hadn't consummated their marriage yet. It was important that Luke shared this detail this way because Jesus needed to be born to a virgin. And so Mary was pledged to be married, even though they were betrothed. And to break that commitment now was tantamount to divorce. They had not yet consummated their marriage And that was significant. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Our Life Preschool does programs here every year, and we set up a little creche over here, and they have a a nativity scene, and it's always cute to see the preschoolers, you know, dressed up as the different characters like shepherds. But, But understand that shepherds weren't clean and kept cute characters. These were the outcasts of the day. They were uh, social outcasts, religious outcasts. They were dishonest. They were unclean. They had a poor reputation. These were the least likely of people to be the first to hear about the birth of Jesus. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, though, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which which were just as they had been told. Now Luke wrote this passage, his account of the birth of Jesus Christ, very intentionally and very specifically with some goals in mind. And one of his goals was not to give Charles Schultz something that Linus could say, in a Charlie Brown Christmas, right? There were some specific things he was trying to communicate, some things that he wanted us to understand. And so as he wrote the account of Jesus's birth, shortly after he had written the account of John the Baptist's birth, he makes some comparisons. And he contrasts Jesus with this Caesar Augustus character. And he did that so that we could know with certainty who Jesus is. Luke wanted us to know that although John the Baptist was the greatest man to have ever lived according to Jesus, Jesus was the God-man. Luke wanted us to know that, that, that although Caesar would have us believe that uh, he was the son of a God, that only one son of God has ever graced 
the earth. So what we want to do today is we want to look at the comparisons that Luke gives us here in these verses, and we want to ask, what do we do with those? So our guiding question today is, how do we know that Jesus was the God-man? Well, according to this passage, we, we know that because Luke demonstrates that Jesus was greater than John the Baptist, and he was the only son of God to walk the earth. So let's walk through each of those. First of all, Jesus was greater than John. So John's birth, as we've seen over the last, uh, the first few weeks of this series, John's birth was told, foretold by the prophets. Centuries before John ever appeared on the scene, his birth was foretold, but often kind of in, in um, general detail. Jesus, however, his birth fulfilled specific details. Let's just look at two of them. Um, and and you've, you've seen these before, but from Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This is a specific prophecy that applied ultimately to Jesus Christ. And Luke makes sure that we understand that indeed Jesus was born to a virgin, to a woman who had yet not consummated her betrothal, her marriage. Or how about Micah 5.2? But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Again, we have it here in the story, right? Luke records, Joseph went from Galilee, from the Galilee in the north, to Bethlehem in the south because he was of the line of David. These are only two uh, prophecies that, that Luke explains are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but there are over 300 Old Testament prophecies that pertain to Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to uh, the possibility of anyone fulfilling the prophecies that are fulfilled of Jesus Christ, mathematicians put it this way. The chance of one person fulfilling eight prophecies made as far in advance as the ones about Jesus were, the chances are one in 100 billion. The chances of one person fulfilling 48 of the 300 prophecies is one chance in 10 to the 157th power. And I'm no mathematician or scientist, but I don't think we can fathom that large of a number. The chances of one person fulfilling all 300 prophecies? <laughs> Only God can do that. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus was indeed greater than John because his birth was foretold centuries in advance and he fulfilled specific details. Secondly, John was born to elderly parents, but Jesus was born to a virgin. So uh, we've already discussed that it went down this way. We, we understand that Jesus was born to a virgin, but do you understand why Jesus had to be born to a virgin? Have you ever thought about that? Why is that so important that Mary had to be a virgin? Well, I'd say there's two main reasons. First of all, because it fulfilled prophecy. So that demonstrated that Jesus was who he claimed to be and who others claimed him to be because he fulfilled that prophecy. Secondly, because Jesus needed to be born without a sin nature. You see, Scripture teaches that the sin nature that we all inherit at birth, we all get this, right? At, at birth, we're born selfish and sinful. 
And we just can't escape it. Every baby, no matter how cute, is born that way. And we all grow up with the sin nature. That sin nature comes, is transmitted through the male. I'm not just making this stuff up. This is actually a theological tenet. Matter of fact, Paul writes a little bit about it in Romans. If we could put up the Romans 5.17 verse. For if, Paul writes... By the trespasses of the one man, death reigned through that man. Who's he talking about here? That's right. We got to go back to Genesis 3. He's talking about Adam. You remember the story. Jesus said you can eat, or God said you can eat from any tree you want in the garden, Adam and Eve, but you may not eat from this tree. And then along came Satan and he tempted Eve and she took a piece of fruit and she ate it. She saw that it was good and pleasing and, ooh, this is fun. And so she gave some to Adam. And Adam also ate. Now that's a story in Genesis 3. Why is it that sin entered through Adam? Hmm, that's interesting. Apparently, God had given Adam the responsibility to lead his wife away from sin. Adam chose to follow Eve into sin. Instead of saying to her, no, honey, this is not the will of God. It may seem more desirable. It may seem more pleasurable. It may seem easier and the right thing to do, but we need to stay within the will of God. And so because Adam didn't do that, because he followed his wife instead of leading her, Paul says, death reigned through that one man. He introduced sin and sin and death have stayed with us. Jesus was born of a virgin because that is the only way that he could be born without a sin nature because that's passed down, that's transmitted through the male. Number three, John's birth was normal. Jesus's birth was humble. We read this verse last week, but let me take you back to it. Luke 157, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Don't you love how easy it was to give birth in these days? The time came, the baby came. No fuss, no mess. I mean, probably not, right? It was probably a little, little uh, more dramatic than that, a little more involved than that. Um, but this is Luke's way of saying there was nothing out of the ordinary about John's birth. His conception, yes, but not so much his birth. He, he was born at home the way that it happened. It was typical for the day. Jesus' birth, on the other hand, Luke describes in a different way. It was extraordinarily humble. You've heard these details that Luke writes here. His parents traveled 90 miles, mom being just days from giving birth, they ended up in a backwater province, a small area that had a great reputation because of who else had come from there, but, but nonetheless, a, a socially and politically insignificant place. They, they didn't have typical lodging. There was no room for them, and so they ended up staying where mm, passerbys would stay or where you know, caravans of people who had no actual lodging would stay. When Jesus was born, he, he wasn't received with a receiving blanket. There, there was no family hand-me-down. Instead, she wrapped him in strips of cloth, probably just what she could find or, or maybe sacrificing even something that she was wearing or had brought on the journey. She wrapped him in strips of cloth, and where did she put him? In a manger. 
a feeding trough, a place where the animals would eat. We would expect, if it weren't for the story, we would expect that God would be born to great celebration in a palace that would be sparkling with gold and silver with with the most comfortable environment and all the best medical help and everything that could be done in the day to welcome him. But Luke is teeing us up. He's cluing us into the radical truth that humility, not power, not grandeur, not pride, humility was a distinguishing mark of the God-man. Luke is telling us throughout his presentation of the birth of Jesus that, that Jesus is greater than John because of these things and also because at John's birth, his father sang of the Lord's salvation. We looked at that last week, but at Jesus's birth, a great company of angels sang of God's salvation. And don't get me wrong, Luke's not trying to take away anything from John the Baptist, but, but he's, trying us, he's trying to help us understand that although John the Baptist was a great man whose birth came about by just miraculous means, and although John the Baptist had a life mission like no person before and no person since, he wasn't the point. He was pointing to the point but he wasn't the point. And I have a sense that if John the Baptist could be with here today, he would be embarrassed about the fact that we're even talking about him, that we're doing a sermon series on him because he wasn't the point. He knew that Jesus was the point. And if he were here, he would tell us hundreds of reasons why Jesus was greater than, than he would. And he would constantly point us back to Jesus. He would say, look at Jesus, consider Jesus. He's the point. That mindset, that humility is totally different than the other person that Luke contrasts with Jesus, Caesar Augustus. You've already met him, so let's look at how Luke uh, con- contrasts Caesar Augustus or Octavian with Jesus. Number one, Caesar's birth was described by Roman historians. Jesus' birth was proclaimed by angels. So many years, many, many years after Octavian was born, when he was now emperor of Rome and the most powerful man in the land, he had historians describe his birth. In the 1860s, archaeologists discovered what's come to be called the Prean calendar inscription. And just, we're just going to read a section of it. If we could put that up, please. Since providence has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, Sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the God, Augustus, was the beginning of the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him. And it goes on and it gushes about how great he was and how he was the best thing that man's ever seen. And, you know, he was the best thing until sliced bread. And then it was the best thing. So Caesar Augustus described his own birth. He, he had the historians tell it um, that he was born of a God and he was the greatest thing to happen to humans and there's no chance that anyone could ever surpass him. But let me ask you a question. 
till we started talking about Caesar Augustus today, this morning, how many of you, by show of hands, knew half or more of what I told you at the beginning about Caesar Augustus? A couple. A couple people studied Roman history. Just a few, though. A good contingent of the homeschoolers. Okay, good, good. All right. I didn't. I mean, I had to study his life to learn some of these things. You see, Caesar described his birth and maybe definitely overreached a little bit. Jesus, however, when he was born, the angels proclaimed who he would be before he demonstrated that. Number two, Caesar demonstrated his power by issuing a decree. God demonstrated his love by sending his son. I mentioned earlier that the historians say the two main reasons that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world was one, for taxes, and two, so he could puff up his chest and show how great and powerful he is. Here's what one scholar writes. As Caesar Augustus enjoyed luxurious accommodations in his Roman palace, he hoped to demonstrate his own greatness before a watching world by publicizing the great number of people under his domain. So Caesar issued a decree because they needed an ego boost, because he needed more money for his campaigns. God, however... God, however, sent Jesus, the angels tell the shepherds, because he favored us, because he loves us, because he wanted to pour out his love and his kindness and his grace and his compassion on us. This is the theme throughout all of scripture from the Old Testament all the way through the book of the Revelation. This phrase is repeated occasionally throughout that says, they will be my people and I will be their God. God's desire from the creation of the earth is to have a people on whom he could pour his love and kindness. The events that happened in Bethlehem on that that day, on that night, in that time, were about God showing us that he loves us and that he would do anything he could to show that. Philippians says it like this, Jesus emptied himself of everything that was his by the nature of the fact that he was God. He poured it out, Paul writes in Philippians. His glory, his power, his, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his, his omnipotency, his omnibeloved, all of it, he poured it out so that he could show us God's love and God's favor, so that he could show us in the flesh what God thought about us. So while Caesar's flexing his muscles and strutting his stuff and showing off his kingdom, showing people how great he is, God is setting aside his power and glory so that you can see and know and feel that he loves you, that he wants a relationship with you, that he favors you. Number three, Caesar called himself Savior and Lord. Notice Caesar called himself Savior and Lord. He called himself the son of a God by calling his dad a God, but Jesus actually is the Savior and Lord. So Caesar manipulated facts, and, and, and uh, in his power, he, he declared that things were so. But you know what? I think history has demonstrated the truth of that. 
I don't know about you, but I've never seen a man or a woman, a teenager, a boy or a girl say, my life was so messed up. And then someone told me one day that Caesar loved me and Caesar would forgive me and I experienced Caesar's love and now I'm a follower of Caesar and my life is forever changed. I mean, it's almost hard to say without laughing. So preposterous. But time and time again, over the last 2,000 years, people's lives have been changed by Jesus Christ. Men and women in our congregation would stand and would say, my life was so messed up. And then I encountered the truth of God's love and his forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And when I received his forgiveness, my life forever changed. And the man you see today, the woman you know today, is not who I used to be. And it's not who I would be if it weren't for Jesus Christ. Caesar described himself as as Savior and Lord. Jesus actually is Savior and Lord. This is how the the angels announce him. For unto you is born this day in in the city of David a Savior. He is Christ. He is Messiah. That means he was the promised one. God had promised that someone would come for his people to save his people, to show his people in the flesh what God thinks of us. And Jesus was that. Jesus is that. And, and he's not only the Savior, or he's not only Christ or the Messiah, but, but the angels say he's the Lord. He's the one with absolute sovereign authority and sovereign power. And it's because of the fact that he is the Lord that lives are changed. That he can take the most desperate of sinners and he can make him the greatest example of his love and glory. It's why he can take the best of people who think they're living a morally upright life, but whose lives are absolutely repugnant to God, and can make them pleasing in God's sight. And finally, Caesar sent Joseph to Bethlehem to ensure that he would pay taxes, but God sent Jesus to Bethlehem so he could pay for our sins. This is the heart of the matter. We're all born sinners. Oh, you may be a good person. You may do right things. Maybe you've never cheated on your spouse or your taxes. Uh, maybe you've never killed anyone or even contemplated it. Maybe, maybe you don't even watch R-rated movies. I don't know. But the heart of the matter is that we're all born sinners. We're all born with our fist in God's face saying, I'm going to do this my way. Thank you very much. And God says, I will forgive your sin. I'll make a way so that you can come back to me. Sin always introduces death into the equation. The death of something and ultimately the death of us, eternal separation from God. So because sin always enters death into the equation, the only way to deal with sin is through death. Something that knows no sin has to die. God said, I'll send my son, I'll come myself, I'll live a perfect life, and I'll die so that your sins can be forgiven. I'll take your place. Jesus came to Bethlehem because our sins needed to be forgiven. We needed to be right with God. We needed to see God in the flesh so that we can know that he loves us and has made a way for us to be right with him. So what do we do with this? Three quick things out of Luke's story here. First of all, 
ponder these things. Luke says, Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you can certainly walk out and say, well, we went to church and he wasn't joking about a 60-minute sermon. And you can miss the point altogether. Or you can spend time pondering these things. You see, I'm not asking you to ascribe to a creed. I'm not asking you to agree with, to agree with certain, certain doctrinal you know, ideas. I'm asking you to consider the fact that there may just be a God who loves you and who wants to pour his favor on you. A God who sees who you are, a God who sees your struggles, he knows the wrong in your life, and he loves you so much that he's made a way that that can be forgiven and that could be done away with, that you could live in relationship with him. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, I want to invite you to ponder this. And if you have the courage to ask God, if that's true, if what preacher man said is true, would you show me? Would you give me a sense of your love so that I can feel it and experience it so I can know that you're real? And that you want to be in relationship with me. If you're a follower of Jesus today, though, I I want to encourage you to spend some time again just reflecting on what God has done for you. Just reflecting on uh, the fact that Jesus came, he humbled himself so that you could be forgiven. Remember that you're not basically good. None of us are. Remember what Jesus endured so that you could experience his great mercy. Remember, ponder, consider the salvation you enjoy and let it move you to the deepest part of your being. Number two, tell others about these things. Tell others about these things. A couple of years ago, uh, I was in so much back pain that I had to do something. And so I went to the closest chiropractor to our house because I could barely sit in my van, my car long enough to get there. And I walked in looking for some comfort. And I walked in the door, and the guy behind the desk greeted me by name. And I had no idea who this guy was. How in the world did he know my name? Turns out he's Gloria Martin's grandson. And he had been in my youth group a number of years back, and he remembered me. He laid me on his table. He did his chiropractor thing. And I walked out of there with no pain. I was like, this is crazy. How could this be? And so everybody who I've seen since then who has back pain, I tell about Dr. Martin on Old 33 in Goshen. And countless people I've referred there. And now all you guys too. I, and I would guess that you have stories like that yourself. I would bet we all have at least one story of something that was meaningful to us that we had to tell other people about. A healthcare worker, uh, uh, an app on our phone, uh, a restaurant, uh, a vacation spot, something that we said, this is too good. I've got to tell others about it. I've got to help others experience what I've experienced. Well, what about Jesus? Have you and do you regularly share with others the difference that Jesus has made in your life? Not just by letting them see your good life. That's good. Jesus says himself, that others may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, but have you told them the difference that Jesus has made? Luke writes that the shepherds, <laughs> when they encountered Jesus, they went and they told others what they saw, and people were amazed. 
And then number three, worship God for these things. The closing line of Luke's account of Jesus' birth said that the shepherds returned rejoicing and praising God, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard. They were motivated to worship God because what they had experienced was greater than anything they deserved, and they knew it. It was greater than anything that could ever be done for them, and they understood that. They knew that this Jesus was God in the flesh. He actually was the Son of God. He actually was Savior and Lord, and really the only thing they could do was worship him. And so what about you? Like the shepherds, do you see, are you aware of the fact that God is working in you? Are you aware of the fact that that he's working around you? Do you have a sense that he's working through you? And if so, the only proper response is the response of the shepherds to spend time worshiping God. That's what this Christmas season is all about. That's what the angels and the manger and Mary and the Christmas trees and the lights and the tree toppers and the gifts and the, sh- and the Christmas cookies. That's what they're all about. They point to God in the flesh the gift that God gave us so that we could be his children. Will you bow and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Luke's account of the the birth of Jesus, for the demonstration that he is your son, that he is God in the flesh, that he has come to save us, to save your people, to give us a way to be right with you. Father, we thank you that uh, we have it here from the outset of his life, that everyone, everything that would set themselves up as equal to or better than Jesus was a lie. That only one God has stepped on our earth. Only one God has laid down everything. Only one God has, has given everything so that we could be forgiven of our sins. Only one God stood in our place and took a punishment he didn't deserve. He became sin who knew no sin so that we could be right with God, so that we could be, we could receive God's righteousness, so that we could be part of your people, God. Would you help us over the next week as we celebrate this holiday we call Christmas to ponder these things? to consider if we've received the salvation that Jesus offers. And if not, would you show us, Father, your love, your forgiveness, your mercy, your compassion? Father, would you help us to share with others the difference you've made in our lives, even though we're not perfect, even though you still work in our lives, we haven't attained it all, but would you help us to point to the one who is the point? And Father, would you help us to worship you? Because you're working, you're alive, and you're worthy. You're worthy of everything we could ever give. You're worthy of every noble, lofty thing we could ever say about you. 
You're worthy of every good deed we could ever do. You alone are worthy. And so would you help us to worship? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.